today in our journey through the book of Judges, we're going to be around chapter 13. I'm actually going to talk a little bit before and a little bit after the story of Samson, but mainly we're going to be talking about Samson's birth. In reading the story about Samson's birth, um, it, it very much there's a piece of this that reminded me of my firstborn, John Owen's birth story. Um, you know, one, for us, having kids just wasn't the easiest thing. Just ha having, having kids wasn't necessarily easy for Jennifer and I. And so we had lost um, two when John Owen was born. It had kind of been scary. And so to that degree, like, I should have been, like, paying attention. But I, I, I feel like I, I, I didn't. And I remember, like, she was reading, um, like, what to expect when you're expecting or stuff like that. And I was like, I don't need to read that. It's just a kid, right? Anybody, like, like, look around. Look at the people who have children. It's like everybody has children. This isn't hard. And I remember the first moment. And this is, this is like one of those few moments in time where it feels like to me that the world just stood still. The very first moment that I held John Owen in my arms for the first time and no one else was in the room. And Jennifer was there. She was asleep. Um, the nurses go out, and I'm holding him, and I just start crying. I feel the weight of it. I'm looking, looking at him, and I'm going, oh, no, what do I do now? What do I do? Is there a book I can read? Like, what do you, how do you take care of this thing, right? I, I remember, you know, the feeling of, like, uh, two days in the hospital, and they're sending you home, and you're like, what? You're sending me home with this? I'm not responsible enough to go home with this. I don't know what I'm doing with this. I, what, what we, somebody, please give me some more instructions. This is, this is literally kind of what happens uh, in this story. There's a moment where Samson's parents are like, but wait, tell me more. Like, we're not ready. Tell me, what are, what's this kid's mission and purpose supposed to be? Tell me. All right. So it's, 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 a, funny, it's a funny story, but what we're going to see is, is truly today two, two things. We're going to see God's mercy and his miracles. And so the big truth for today is this. God uses mercy and miracles to save his people from their sin. And so when we kind of highlight and I approach a text and I draw out a big truth, I generally try to, try to find and see the truth in the text that is about God that we can see other places in Scripture. And I think you'll see that this is true in other places in Scripture. Now, we're going we're gonna to kind of start where we left off last week in Judges chapter 12. In the book of Judges, there are 12 judges and one anti-judge. Uh, one, one, one judge, Abimelech, who was the son of hell, who was not a judge. But there were 12. There were six major and there were six minor and so major has to do with the length that they're given in the, in the text and what we know about them, not necessarily their importance. Samson, who we're going to talk about, start today and finish next week, he has more, he's given more text and more story, more chapters, more words than any other judge. And so let's go and finish off uh, the last three of the minor judges real quick. After him, this is chapter 12, verse 8. After him, Ibzam of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters 
he gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from, uh, uh, from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. And after him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died, and he was buried at Ejelon in the land of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on seven donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amicalites. Chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Here comes my first big idea. It's this. Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Now, if you notice verse 13, it doesn't say that. It says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, 13.1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the sixth time that we've heard this in this book. This is the sixth time, but it's also the final time. It's the final time that the author says it. Because from this point on, two more times, remember there's this double conclusion, just like there was this, this uh, double introduction, there's a double conclusion. And in the last two times in the book, he restates it and he says, Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And so I want to I show you, we talked about in the very, very first and second sermon, both those sermons, we talked about the cycle. And the cycle looks like this, that Israel serves the Lord. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel then is enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel's delivered. And then Israel serves the Lord. That's the cycle. And then it starts all back over. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. That, that's, that's the cycle that we see in the life of Israel. This happens in the book of Judges. But this also happened in the end of Joshua, but it, it happens after the book of Judges, and it continues uh, until, the, 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 until Jesus, till the birth and death of Jesus, the life of Jesus, but then continues in his people today. We fall prey to this uh, a very similar cycle. But when we get to this point in the book of Judges, there's actually a missing link. There's a piece of this cycle that, that's missing. Israel serves the Lord. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel is enslaved. But at this point in the book, by this point, remember the first judge, Othniel, he, he, we see like this is a decent judge, and they just go down, and they go down, and they go down, Gideon, Jephthah, and now Samson. And what, what is missing is that Israel cries out to the Lord. At this point, they are failing to cry out to the Lord. Remember last week as we talked about Jephthah, that God saw them in their misery and he lost patience with it. And before they cried out for help, he showed mercy. 
And here we are again, where they're in this cycle, and they're doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not even taking what's right in the Lord's eyes into the equation. They're not thinking through to themselves. It, would this please the Lord? They're only thinking, would this please me? Is this what I think I ought to do? And so there, there, there comes, there comes a, a place in, a, in, a, in time where we, we are in a place of like we know the right thing to do and we don't do it. And that is clearly sin. Like when you, when you clearly know the Lord would have you do this thing, but you reject that thing, that's clearly sin. But it's also sin... It's, it's sin whether you know it's right or not. When it doesn't bring God glory and bring one's, oneself glory, when it is sin against a holy and righteous God, it's still sin. Now, you, you, you may not know it's sin or think it's sin, but it doesn't matter. Sin is sin. And so this is, this is where they are, and here is their problem. And I, I, I read those three uh, last minor judges to kind of show you what, what theolo theologians call syncretism has crept in. Syncretism is when you sync your religion, your, your values in with the culture that is around you. And so uh, a great example of that, just like an easy example, would be like a Unitarian Universalist church. We could look at that and go, okay, the Unitarian Universalist church just kind of takes like well, everything is true. It's true for you. It's true for you. Good for you. And, you know, we'll, we'll practice some of this religion and some of this religion and some of this religion. We'll just kind of throw them all in a pot and we'll mix them up and we'll see if we can get something out that, that works for you. That's, that would be a, a very uh, blatant example of modern uh, syncretism. Here's what they did. And we, we can read it. So, so first, when you're looking at 12 and, and verse 8, you're going to see that Ibzim of Bethlehem had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and then they, he gave them in marriage outside the clan. And so what, what you see, and this is, this is not uncommon, this isn't the first time it happened, like this had been happening in Israel, that they married people of other religions. They went after foreign wives. We, we can look to the, the future and see what would happen with Solomon, with his, his wives and his concubines, and what would happen to Israel because of it. And so we see that they were unequally yoked, that they had um, par partnered themselves in marriage with people who did not believe what they believed, and they ended, ended up taking in their their gods. Now, the New Testament speaks very clearly about this. That's where actually the term being unequally yoked comes from. So it says that if you are unequally yoked, if you, you, are, you are married and you have a, you, you don't, you know, you, you're a professing Christian, you say you believe the gospel and your partner doesn't, that man, you, you should honor your marriage. You should stay in your marriage and you should be faithful. So this isn't, there's, this would be bogus if anyone said, well, uh, we don't share the same worldview, we should be divorced. Right? That, that's, not, that's not the case. But what he does say is that when you, uh, on, on the front end, when you commit to somebody in marriage, if you're a Christian, they ought, to, they ought to be a Christian too. They ought to believe the gospel too. And who you partner and marry your life with matters, and it has an eternal outcome. Would you understand that? 
And so it's, it's been interesting to me in years of ministry as I began to, couples, couples in counseling and conversation who have different worldviews, and they're like, oh, it's all cool, it's legit. Like, she does her thing, I do my thing, it's great. And then they have kids. And then, then that happens, and it's like, oh, wait. I mean, I know, I know, of, I know of a, a family right now that, that man, there's, there's this split in the family of, like, this teenager, it's time for him to make his own decision. Is he going mom's way or dad's way? I grew up in a, in a family where my father was not a believer and my, mom, my mother was. I remember my father sitting me down at 15 years old, and he said, you're 15 now, you're a man. Sweet. Uh, you can decide if you want to go to church or not. You don't have to go to church with your mother. At 15, he told me that, and I was like, huh. Okay. Well, why is that? We had a very, very up, upfront conver- conversation about it, you know. And I saw even what it did in my own home. I saw that. I, I saw that what what that did, and so it matters. And so that's the first. That's the first way in which secretism was there. Here's here's the second that we can clearly see, is that you see their sons and their daughters, and, and what they did with their sons and their daughters, that. They had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. You see, they, the judges wanted to live like worldly kings. You can see that in this text, that like, this, is not how, uh, uh, this is not how Joshua lived, right? This is not how Moses lived. They were humble servants. They sought, they sought to be servants, not kings. They sought to, to lead, and I think it... It, it becomes clear that these three judges were trying to build kingdoms. Now, here's the third place I want you to see it. I want you to flip in your Bibles to chapter 17. And, and I'm just going to show you this. We're not going to dive deep into 17, but there's the story of Micah and the Levites. So this is, on, this is immediately after the death of Samson. So Micah, there was a man in the hill country... And he had been, had been, his mom had this money stolen from him, and from that money uh, being stolen, he gets it returned back. And to make this kind of sacrifice to God, he like takes part of it and he makes this idol out of it. And he finds pleasure with he and his mother in this idol. And then he decides like I'm going to get a Levite. Those should be priests. Right? I'm going to get a Levite. And I'm going to make them priests in my home. It's just really weird story where then he's got this Micah and the Levite. He's got this Levite in his home and. Uh, he makes them priests, and he then begins bringing in these foreign idols and worshiping the idols of the people around them. It was strange, and so it gets even it gets even more weird when other people in the tribe come and steal the priest so that they can have a priest. It just shows you that that will serve all these foreign idols. It shows you how far Israel has fallen because he's going well. The other other people around us have these idols. I want one of these idols too. We go to India on mission trips, and we go into homes. Um, it, it's, it, AJ and I did this. The, this is when COVID happened, and AJ, AJ and I were in India. We were on a mission, mission trip there, and we were going home to home. We were sharing the gospel, and we would walk into homes, and there would be all sorts of gods. Every, every, every little town had its own unique god, and every house typically had its own god. And you'll see all these gods. And so as we're sharing the gospel with them, we, ha- we would just have to be so clear. And, I, and it, most of the time, to be honest, I don't think this would go. Syncretism was the issue. We didn't want them just to say, to put Jesus up on a shelf and say, we've got another God and his name is Jesus. They were, no, there is only one God. 
the Lord is one, there, there is but only one way. And so it's easy for us to look at them. It's easy for us to look at, at say, um, a Buddhist or a Hindu uh, who have the plurality of gods and say, well, this is syncretism. But it's a little harder for us to look at ourselves and go, well, actually, ha- do we have syn- syncretism in our own life? I think we do. I think in our church life and our church culture in the world that we live in that we have real secretism. I think we're friends with the world. I want you to understand, by the time we get to Samson, the book of Judges, they're they're living with the Philistines. They're friends with the Philistines. The Philistines are... uh, are oppressing them and holding them captive, but the fact that Samson can go and take Philistine wives and can marry a Philistine woman says something. It says that they've syncretized in, that they, they're, it's just part of the world around them. That the fact that they're not crying out to their God, asking them to save them, they're not asking for salvation, says that they, they've just accepted their circumstances in the world around them. And in a lot of ways, I think that's true of us. I think we're friends with the world. In James chapter 4, he says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that we ought to look at the things in the world that, that are opposed to the things of God. And we ought to reject them. We ought to be willing to stand firm on the Bible and say, No, this is not what God's word said. This is sin. Therefore, I reject it. And if you reject me because I reject that sin, that's okay. But man, we we rarely are willing to be, uh, uh, rarely are we okay with being rejected by the world. When when somebody, like if you're getting your hair cut, those of us who have hair, get haircuts, buddy. Um, If if you're getting your hair cut and, you know, there's people around and they can hear you and the, 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 the person cutting your hair asked you a question. Like, do you really believe that? And you feel this kind of sense and urge, like if I don't tone down my answer, everybody's going to hear me and they're going to reject me, and she might give me a bad haircut. Like, in that moment, like, no, we as Christians got to be to stand firm on that. If your employer is asking you a question, he thinks, okay, you think that this, this could potentially affect my job and promotion which, by the way, is wrong, but could, are, are you willing to say, yes, I firmly stand on this conviction because it's biblical, and no, I won't do that. I mean, all the time, we're, we're being, um, stuff is being forced on us, and so whoever wishes to be a friend of the world has to be, uh, uh, has to be okay with being an enemy of God, and whoever wants to be a friend with God has to be okay with being an enemy with the world. So, I asked that question, what is our secretism? And I just would want to pry in for a second. Idols are what we worship, and that is what happens. They take on false gods, they take on things we worship, and so, can I ask, from the world around us, the culture around us, what are the things that you are worshiping? Man, I, I, I do believe that in our culture, money 
is the easiest target. It's the easiest idol. We look around and we see the wealth that we have or don't have, and we see the wealth of others, and we want more. Everything in our lives, every, every bit of algorithm that is in our lives is there to sell us something. When studying for this sermon, boats popped up, like a little thing, like some, some boat rental place popped up, right? And I'm like, well, man, I want a boat. And so, you know, next thing you know, I'm clicking on boats. It's like, it's end of season. It's the best time to buy a boat. Wait a second. I don't have to have a boat, right? That Everything in our lives drives us to it. There's some sort of algorithm that's going to, to, to push us to want more. It's... it's, it's the next car, the next house, the, the next vacation. We turn on our, our social media apps and we look and we see people in other places and we have FOMO and we say, hey, we want to do that thing and therefore we want more money in order to do more. And in, in, in a lot of people today, it's fame. Years ago, if you ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? It was a police officer, a firefighter. Now it's to be, then it moved on to like, I want to be the next LeBron James, like I want to be good at sports. Now kids just want to be famous. They just want to be known. They want to be influencers. I'll be honest. First, this is let me say, like most of the people who we call influencers as a culture, we need to stop letting them influence us. I, I said to Jennifer yesterday, I was just kind of joking. Uh, I looked at her and said, hey, did you know Kim Kardashian and Pete broke up? She laughed at me. She says, old news. And then we just started going on of like, who cares what Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson are doing? Why, why do we let them influence our thought and our taste or what we buy? Why do we want fame? Fame is meant to break you. Look at famous people in their lives. They're broken. And Satan uses fame. He gives you more than you can handle. And so I don't look at my kids and go, man, one day I want them to be famous. Why would I want that for my kid? I don't think, why, why do I, no. Obscure Christian life following the Lord is what is in fact going to be uh, fulfilling. Man, family is important in our culture. It is. And listen, not everything like not everything that's, that, that becomes an idol is bad. Money's not bad in and of itself, right? Some, someone can have fame and it not be bad. Well, family in and of itself is not bad until you idolize it. Till you try to find fulfillment in your spouse, in your children, in your parents that puts that above the Lord. And so I think in our, in our world, in our, in our American dream, two kids and a dog, right? And maybe this culture, it's one kid and two dogs. Um, that, that child, you, you're, you're doing something really unfair to that child when you say to that child, fulfill me. That's unfair. When you get married and you, you're getting married and you think, if I just get married, that will fulfill me. That's unfair to the spouse. And then what happens when you get married and, and it doesn't fulfill you if you just have kids and then, then you can't get pregnant. Then infertility is an issue. Their hope is in the wrong thing. So I think family, I think status, success. I think we can be so driven by success in our culture 
that, that it can be the thing that drives us and the thing that we try to f- find fulfillment in. Sexuality. This is huge. I mean, I mean, so many people in our world right now are trying to find fulfillment in sexuality. So much so that we're teaching our kids, if you can't find fulfillment in sexuality, change your gender. Change this. Change that. Change your preference. And, and this is what we see in a lot, of, a lot of those people who I've dealt with and I've counseled with over the years. It's one change, and then another change, and then another change, and then another change. Until they finally give it all up and say, strip it all off and go, I want to go back to normal, but now I can't. Sexuality is not going to fulfill you. Sexuality fulfills you for a little bit. But it's not long term. And here's, here's, here's one of the, kind of the last things I'm going to say. Is I think in, in our culture, in our culture specifically, that recreation is an idol. That, that you know... When I looked on Instagram this morning, another church planner and his kid had climbed Long's Peak. It's the only 14-year I care about climbing. I don't want to climb any others. I just want to climb Long's Peak. I, had, I should do that this week. I should climb it. I should, I should take time off, and I should go climb Long's Peak. Right? We, we think that way. We, we see others, and we live here. This is the time of the year where, like, in other places we joke and say, like, church starts after Labor Day, and, like, after Labor Day, school's back in, everybody's done with their vacations. No. No. Everybody comes back to church when the weather's awful. That's when everybody comes back to church. It's because until then, we're like, ooh, it's our last weekend to get in the mountains. And then next week, the next weekend, looks. it's our next weekend to get in the mountains. Like, we feel this need to recreate, and we recreate because that has become the only way that we know how to rest who's misunderstood what it means to take a day off from work and to Sabbath and to to take our mind and put our mind on the Lord because we need that. All these idols, all the things that we syncretize syncretize ourselves to the culture around us are things that we think are going to fulfill us but leave us empty instead. Idols are a cruel, uh, false god. And so I want to remind you of my big truth. Is that God uses mercy and miracles to save his people from their sin. This morning you may be here and you may be just like Israel. And you're in a cycle in your relationship with God where you've stopped crying out to him. Maybe you've never cried out to him. But the Lord this morning, this morning in any part in your life, he can show you mercy and miracles. Now read with me verse 2 of chapter 13. There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. So here's the first big idea that I want to show you. I mean, this, the next big idea I want to show you is that Samson's birth was miraculous. It was miraculous. This is God ordaining a miracle. A certain man of Zorah, tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. That's a big statement. Listen, there's no fertility doctor to go to. There's no uh, artificial insemination. There's, there, there's no embryo transfer. There's, there's no pills to take. This is, this is they cannot have a child. And just like he did... 
with Sarah in the Old Testament. This is just like he did with John, John the Baptist's mother, with Elizabeth. So he does again here. And God does the miraculous. He lets her get pregnant, conceive, and have a child. It was a miraculous birth. Now, in Scripture, when we look at Scripture, we see that there are things called typologies. There's something we categorize typologies. There's types of Christ. And this is clearly, um, all the way back to Augustine, this has clearly been seen, Samson's been seen as a type of Christ. Now, Samson, we're talking about this, this, this next week. He is a sinner, and he's a saint. He's both things. And you read his life, and it's hard to see the saint. It's real easy to see the sinner. We're going to talk about that next week. But as this type of Christ, we can look also to Jesus, whose birth was miraculous. Jesus' birth was miraculous because his mother knew no man. It was the, the, the immaculate conception. It was that God, again, caused the birth. God did a miracle. He did what man alone could not do. And that's the thing we need to see here. And the angel of the Lord, verse 3, appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you're barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So it's said that he's going to be this, this Nazarite. Now, uh, this Nazarene vow comes from Numbers uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. You can read about the Nazarite vow. But there's essentially three things that would come out of that. Not to cut the hair during the period of the vow. So uh, the, the, to take a Nazarite vow, you wouldn't cut your hair during the period of the vow. You'd not drink any produce from vines. So for them, it means they would not drink wine. Um, three, you are not supposed to have contact with any dead body, which made you essentially like a Levite priest. Because they, they wouldn't have contact with a dead body other than in the ceremonial cleansing way. And so the purpose of the Nazarite vow was to ask God for special help during a, uh, a, a, a special time, a difficult time. It was a voluntary vow. You took it. Uh, you, you took it because you knew you needed the help. However, this is not uh, voluntary um, for Samson. He is uh, a Nazarite from birth, meaning not even his mom would do this. It was involuntary for him. This is God raising up a judge. Okay, so this is just to clear up. What does this mean? Verse 6, Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For this child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Here's the next big idea I want you to see is that Samson will save Israel by his death. And so, right here, you're seeing his birth. But this is also, this is also a, a bit of prophecy. That he'll be this Nazarite, this child will be Nazarite from God from the womb to the day of his death. 
that he would not just be born a Nazarite, he would not just be born uh, to God and set apart from God, that even his death would be set apart from God. And we're going to read next week the life of Samson, and we're going to read about his death. It's his foolishness and his sin that end him up in the position that he is in. It, it, is, it is his sin, it is his lustful appetite that ends him up there. We're going to see all that in his story next week. But in his death, in order for him to uh, bring relief and salvation to the Israelites from the Philistines, that what we're going to see, that in his death, as his hair grows back out, as the spirit strength is back in him, when he pushes in those columns, and he, and he collapses, and the, Israelite, the, the Philistines fall in and die, he dies a sacrificial death. This again points to Christ. Though Christ was not a sinner, he, he knew no sin. He had never sinned. In order to save his people, he would have to die. That he would be the sacrifice for you and for I. That he would give up his life so that you and I may live. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And so this is where we look, and we look at the story of Samson, and we go, no, Samson's, Samson's life and death was meant to be a sacrifice lived out to God. His entire life. And yet we see Christ's life. It was given to us, God's sacrifice to redeem his children, to save his children. That in, in his good and sovereign purposes... His son would die, that he who knew no sin would take on the sin, would become sin, so that we might experience the righteousness of Christ. That the one good man would die so that many bad men would live. That's the good news of the gospel. That it is, it is, it is God's mercy. That even when we are rebellious in our hearts, and we're, we're rebelling from God and running from God, we don't cry out from God, we're not crying for God's help, that God broke the cycle by sending his son and, and God breaks our own cycles that, that he interjects a moment in our life where he puts, he puts Jesus in our path. When we hear the good news of the gospel, that we hear that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That he was crucified on the cross, that he was, he was buried, he was put in the tomb, and that God raised his son to life on the third day that those who would believe would be saved. And so just as Samson will save Israel by his death, so Christ saved us by his. Verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us to teach us what we are to do with this child who will be born. There's my opening illustration. There's my like, please come again. Like, what was that book? Give me that book. This, this is going to be this child born of God. What a responsibility that those two parents have that they, they go, they're going to raise this child for God. And listen, uh, spoiler alert, they failed miserably. God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. 
And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and, and what is his mission? Man, we ought to be, all be asking that of our kids. We ought to, we ought to all parent with that in mind. Uh, what is to be this child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you, angels don't eat, by the way. But, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer to it the Lord. For Manoah did not know that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And so here's my next big idea, is that when we experience God, we worship him. We see this over and over and over as a response. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Jesus is, is, is coming. He's being raised from the dead. And the two Marys are at the tomb. And when the angel of the Lord, like when, when he, he leaves and Jesus shows up, what do they do but fall on their face and worship? This, this is the right response. And so for Manoah and his wife to see that this is the Lord and he's moving and is working, what they did was they fell on their face and they worshiped the one who works in wonders, right? The, they, he says right there, the one who works wonders. This is who this, this, is who this offering is, is uh, being made for. This is the, the, the altar that we're going to put this young goat on. It's for the one who works wonders. It's the merciful, miraculous God who demands our worship. I can promise you all those other things that we worship... They're not going to do any miracles for you. And they're not going to show you any mercy. Matter of fact, they're going to be merciless. They're not going to bring you into to wonders and miracles. They're going to leave you desolate. Continuing on. He asked for instruction. And Manoah said, when your words come true, what is to be this child's manner of life and what is his mission? He wanted instruction. So often we come to church wanting instruction. We come, we come to the Bible wanting instruction. We just want to know what's the thing to do. Rather than worship. Worship was the, the answer they ended up giving. It's what they ended up, uh, up, up giving. It's what, what we need to give. We don't just come here to, to learn, to get more instruction. We come here to experience God and worship God. That's why we come to him. So in verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. 
But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Uh, Mahanadon between Zorah and Eshtal. Here's my last big idea. We should long for the spirit of the Lord to stir in us. What we see in this miraculous account of God doing this great, incredible deed, it ends with a son being born and the spirit of the Lord beginning to stir. We should long for the spirit to stir. And maybe, maybe it's been a while since you felt the spirit of God. Maybe you have been in a dry season. Maybe you've been in a cycle of sin, just like Israel, where you're at the place that you're not even crying out to God anymore. That you're just accepting your circumstances as they are. Maybe we should be like the, the, the moment in the day when the, and as God is raising up this judge, that God would stir his spirit in us. Samson's life, we're going to see, his life was lived as a sacrifice. All the days of his life, he was a Nazarite. All the days of his life were supposed to be lived as sacrifice. And I think of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It's what we read to open the service. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Today, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, and you look today and you'd say, I am conformed to the ways of the world, that you would turn from the world, that you would turn from finding comfort and pleasure in the things of the world, from, from worshiping the things of the, the, the world and worshiping the Lord Jesus. That today we would see transformation. That today God would begin transforming you, stirring in you, working in you. Today, if you're a, a believer, that it's been a long time since you've worshipped today in this next song, cry out to God. Repent and worship. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would use it to refine us, to transform us, to save us. And so, Father, we pray for salvation today. We pray for repentance today. We pray for transformation today. Lord, the, in ways in which we have made friendship with the world, that we've synchronized ourselves to the world, that we look like the world. Lord, would you show us that? Would you reveal that to us today and give us repentance from it. Lord, may we turn from it and run to you and you only. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.